Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, the Penn Live Penn State Blitz podcast is back. I'm Greg Pickle, joined by Dave Jones this week. Bob Flounders is off, so Dave is sitting in to talk about the latest COVID-19 updates and how that will impact when and if college football will return. We're going to talk about Jim Harbaugh's open letter and what that means and doesn't mean as we get into the middle of May here. Finally, Dave has been doing some stat mine columns, which I'm sure you've all been able to check out related to the Big Ten. We'll get into those, and finally, we'll get into the listener mailbag. All right, Dave, welcome to your first uh, visit to the Penn Live Penn State Blitz podcast. How are things going for you and the family, and what's new? I have big shoes to fill, Greg, and I don't take that lightly. Bob Flounders, when's he coming back? When do we Bob's expect him back? back? Next week. All right, man. I'll try my best. I'll try the best I possibly can. It's peaceful here in Downingtown, out in the backyard a lot. Uh, shagged some flies at the local Little League park that was uh, strictly off limits, but there was nobody there. So uh, we had Anna and uh, Nick and me, and I was staggering around. I, I got to about 20 balls. He must have hit me 60 balls, and I think I got to about 20 of them and watched a video later, and it was just pathetic. And I, I think I caught five. Do you, uh, so That's one thing you can do. I wrote about this morning about playing basketball. You can do that by yourself. You, you can't play baseball by yourself. I guess you could hit on a machine, but uh, it was really fun doing that. We got Anna out there. She was the cutoff man, and I was, uh, I've was i got no arm left either. It was just a depressing day in a lot of ways, but uh, that's what we've been doing and, and hanging out with Kaiser and walking around. All right. Very good. Well, let's move on to some topics that maybe bring some hope to our listeners and to each other. Let's start with, uh, you know, the topic that everyone wants to talk about, the return of college football, if and when that will happen. We heard from James last week. Bob Flounders wrote that all options need to be on the table. You had uh, put up a column about how the NFL will have an easier time restarting than college football. And one thing that's in the news this week gives you a great indication and jumping off point about that conversation. This California state school system has said it's probably going to have all of its classes online in the fall. Penn State was set to play a school or is still set, I guess, to play a school from that school system, San Jose State, in its non-conference slate in mid-September. That obviously is going to be up in the air. If no kids are on campus, we don't think many universities are going to play. So, Dave, as we uh, march towards Memorial Day here, where are you at now compared to maybe where you were in March or April about how this could all shake out? What is your general sense of things at this point? And do you think decisions are going to be soon on the horizon or are they going to hold off as long as they possibly can to look into how to put the schedule together for this year? Well, I I can't really be optimistic about the fall, and I want to be, uh, because let's face it, it's our bread and butter. But I I tend to think that we're headed for spring football before the, the school's fiscal year ends, which is June 30th. I think they could stuff in some sort of uh, bastardized schedule between March and June. But man, my default position on universities and academia is that they are they are reflexively 
for lack of a better term, they're, they're risk averse. They want to cover their asses and they have all sorts of liability concerns about starting football at a college where the employees are allegedly amateurs. And this is what we ch- I talked to James about. My first question to him was about testing and how important that was, an abundance of tests. They need antigen tests, which is some inside baseball that my, uh, my best friend here in Downingtown happens to be uh, trained as a molecular biologist. So he's given me a lot of tips. Now he sells um, oncology treatments to, to giant uh, pharma companies around the world. And he says there's a there's a, a really big breakthrough on the horizon in making abundant antigen tests, which is are the ones that you really need to, to find out whether uh, people are infected. And it, you, you not only need an abundance of them, millions and millions of them, but you need, need them to be able to respond quickly. And that's what these can do. Uh, you get results back in a few minutes rather than a few hours. All that said, this is so different. And we asked James Franklin about this, and he agreed from the NFL, because the NFL has a collective bargaining unit. They have professionals who all are represented by a unit. Uh, If they don't like a proposal that the NFL owners put before them, uh, they reject it, and they can't. If they find something that where the risk is acceptable to them, they agree, they sign it, and then the deal is done. I mean, you basically got a bunch of billionaire owners. You have 32 franchises. They're private businesses, and you have those 53 players on the roster, plus how, how many are on a taxi squad, the injured reserve, or whatever they call that now. I'm not an NFL guy. You are. Yeah, you're talking about probably you know, 53 players on the active roster, plus maybe another 10 or 12 between yeah. those other things. Oh. Yeah, you, you've got your employees at the stadium, and that's it. You don't have to let fans in, and I, I'm sure NFL fans will be happy with just being able to watch the games on TV. And that's the extent of your responsibility. Now, consider what colleges must worry about. They not only have to test all of their college football players, if they agree to do that, then they also have to worry about whether students are on campus. Well, in a legal respect, if students aren't on campus, how can it be safe for the college football players? What, you're going to make special rules for them? That's a liability concern. You've got all the different hundreds of athletes at Power 5 programs who also have to be tested. Not just the 53 players in the NFL or the 85 uh, plus the walk-on. These hundreds and hundreds of other athletes who must play. If they don't play, that's a Title IX lawsuit waiting to happen. It's not only that, you have layers of management over the top of any university. Not just the athletic director, who uh, I guess could be considered uh, the general manager in the sense of uh, an NFL team. You've got layers, you've, you've got chancellors, presidents, even the governor of these big state universities, which are states state-funded, who are making decisions that are above your pay grade. It's a really, really complicated problem, and I can't be optimistic that we're going to have college football before, if not a vaccine, which is going to be a year, everybody says, at least some sort of unique treatment that... Um, uh, beats back the pandemic to a point where they think it's manageable. And who knows who knows if and when that's coming. So I think there are two, as James Franklin acknowledged, there are two completely different ballgames. And um, college football needs the money, but they need the money of their, their, their students and their enrollees first. I think they'll, they'll sneak in something in the spring if they possibly can between March and June. But that would be my guess right now. James had also said, Dave, that he thought maybe 10% of the roster wouldn't maybe feel comfortable or at least have questions about coming back to campus. 
if and when that happens. Was that a number that surprised you at all? I was surprised that he uh, even gave a number, weren't you? Yeah, yeah a, I was. put a number on it? I thought that was interesting. It ain't going to be their decision, man. And that's See, that's another thing. Right. How do you get all these private, in, these, these, these amateur athletes, how do they sign off on the risk of playing? Do you have personal disclaimer disclo- disclaimer forms and they all sign releases individually? That's the only way I can see it. You don't have to deal with that in the NFL or any pro league because they have collective bargaining units. It's a big, big, big complicated problem. It certainly is. And I think that's why at this point, it's, it is hard to be optimistic, as you said. But we'll try to be because it's something we all want to see. Back. The, antigen, okay, let's... The, the antigen test is very, is very good news that I got from my buddy Scott. He said they can make millions and millions of these and they report back quickly within, within minutes, not hours, which is great. That's good. That's good news. All right. We'll hang our hat on that. Let's move on to second down. Good news for you. We get to talk about Jim Harbaugh. I know he's a guy you like to talk about. He recently signed an open letter um, about a variety of different proposals. I could get into them, but I'd rather just turn the table over to you, the, the microphone over to you, Dave, and let you have at it. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I want to, I want to, people have heard my take. What did you think when you read it? I think that obviously when you look at uh, what Jim Harbaugh, I, I think you had wrote it, and I agree with you 100%. I think that when when Jim Harbaugh decides something, he decides it because it's what's best for him and, you know, what could help him, uh, you know, move forward. And, you know, I don't know. I look at it and think it's a lot of bloviating and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, things. <laughs> I've that never heard aren't you say bloviating. I like that. There you go. For, we just needed a, a pandemic to get to that point. You know, if they want to declare, if he wants kids to declare for the draft after their freshman season and all this stuff, you know, I mean. I guess, you know, in one sense, it could work. And I guess in another sense, it would be silly. And I think it's, you know, so look, at let's just hold Trevor Lawrence up as the prime example of a guy who everyone thought could go start in the NFL after one season. And then maybe last year kind of slowed the momentum of that whole opinion and, and take. So, you know, again, I think with Harbaugh, it, it, it's an open letter that I'm not really sure who he was trying to address or what the purpose well, recruit, of it was. Yes, it was all about recruits. It's all about sure. to, to look like a player's coach. And I don't even know if he thinks there's any hope of any of that happening, but that wasn't the important part. The important part was that, oh, what do you, why do you write an open letter? I mean, if you really wanted to affect change, don't you just send it to the NCAA or send it to uh, the, uh, the the Power Five chieftains, the, the, the uh, Power Five commissioners? That would be the way to affect change. An open letter is only to be noticed, and there's nothing that Jim Harbaugh likes more than being noticed. But recruiting in college football is all about being noticed. I mean, James Franklin does it. Everyone does it. These coaches come down and helicopters to high school games because it's impressive. Do you think there's a realistic chance of that happening? College kids going to the NFL after the freshman seasons? Again, there's just not many that are physically ready to play at no, that level. No, like, no. That, would, uh, that would be the eye-opening thing for folks pushing that. I mean, look, I'm all for giving these kids more opportunities to make money I and am. to yeah. you know, quickly get to that point. So I'm okay with it from that perspective. I think the mistake comes in the idea that there would be a number, you know, a lot of guys who could, uh, you know, who could be selected by NFL teams right. if they there's left just, after. There just aren't that many. There yeah. aren't. There's very little chance of the NFL agreeing to it, from what I know. So what is it? It's really just a way for Jim Harbaugh to posture as 
the friend of the player, the advocate of the player, and that he thinks that that maybe could help him down the road. Look, I'm, I, I liked all his proposals. I'm all for player freedom. But the other part is, who would it hurt the most in the Big Ten? There's only one team it would hurt, and that's his arch rival, Ohio right. State, because they're, they're far and away the best recruiting team school in the league. And they're the, you tell me, you know more about recruiting than I do. How many players would there have been in the last five, seven, eight years who could have gone to the NFL after their freshman seasons, and where did they go to school? Yeah, I mean, I'd have to go back and your point well taken that, yeah, uh, Ohio State would be among the uh, leaders in that category, I would think. J.K. Dobbins, maybe, because running backs don't want to get right. out of here and there. Yep. yep, no question about it. All right, you are listening to the Penn Live Penn State Blitz podcast. You can find it on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you get your uh, your audio. It's live every Thursday morning. Sometimes we push it back depending on the interview schedule of James Franklin and some other folks. But please remember to like, rate, and subscribe when you go to listen. If you're watching the video version, uh, it's youtube.com slash all Penn State. You can subscribe there as well, and we'll be back after this break. All right, Dave Jones, moving on to third down of this mid-May Flitz podcast. And we are uh, we're going to get into uh, some stuff you've been writing about lately, the Big Ten. So we're going to look at this from a true Big Ten perspective. We're third and two. We're going to try and run it up the middle and pick up a first down. But at any rate, you wrote recently about uh, the Big Ten and how the nine gate uh, conference schedule has hurt it. Let me go back to the first part of the show, though, quick and talk about that nine game schedule. Do you think that non-conference games will and, you know, this could end up, you know, going one way or the other. And I think any season it is played will have some kind of asterisk to it. But do you think a non-conference schedule is even in play at this point? Will they play in the fall, in October, and in the spring? Or do you think it's going to be conference only at this point? I think conference only. And that is very sad for a group of five schools, FCS schools, who, you know, are, are kind of in an indentured servant capacity with the Power Five anyway. They, they basically till the land on uh, the Power 5 soil. They, they come and, and get a, a chunk of change, get a million dollars or more to come and play and buy games, almost always on the Power 5's field. They travel from places like Idaho last year. So you've got long travel. You've got people coming in from remote locations. Just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think the Power 5 schools... This is sadly a, a situation where everyone's going to be looking out for number one and nobody's going to be looking out for the group of five. This is going to be their livelihood, this group of five schools, because they need those paychecks and they're not going to, I can't see them getting them. That's what I would say. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, you have a story coming out a little bit later this week about some research you've done about home field advantage in the Big Ten over the last 20 years. Give us a sneak peek or two at some of the more surprising things you found, whether it's related to Penn State or another Big Ten school. Well, I thought, you know, I don't think there's any question that playing without fans or certainly a limited number of fans who are, who are widely social distanced uh, before a vaccine is, is certainly in play and probably the way it's going to happen. Playing without students on campus, I don't think that's a hurdle they're willing to go over, but playing without fans, hey, it's it makes less complicated this situation by by a lot. So I started thinking, 
who are the schools that have had the biggest advantages from home crowds? And how could they be uh, the, the playing field, I think, could be could, could be leveled out. There are some schools you would expect at the top. I actually went back the last 20 years uh, to see who has actually performed the best, not just at home in home games, but against the Vegas spread, which I think is the true test of how well you perform. The lines makers bake in the these point spread, uh, the the home field always between. And we were talking yesterday. I guess three, three to three to five points is what's generally commonly um, baked into that spread when they make the line, and then they let the the betters manipulate it however they want and try to yeah. keep all the money uh, on uh, half on each side, and that's the way it works. But after all that's happened, how do those teams perform against the spread? I think that tells you exactly what kind of home field advantage they have. Mm-hmm. So I went back in 20 years of Bill Steele's and I saw how people, how how teams, Big Ten teams in the last 20 years performed at home against the spread. And there were some things that were expected. There's one team that, that plays a lot of three-star guys and has overachieved for 20 years and they are at the top. I won't say who it is because it's coming out. Uh, we we run that Thursday. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So and as you're listening to this on Thursday, you'll also be able to read that story. It's pretty interesting list. As you would expect, the the schools with some of the places we've we we don't enjoy going too often <laughs> out in the cornfields. They don't perform very well, even against the spread. Even even with the spread um, infusing that that alleged home field advantage in, they still don't perform well at home. And some of those are exactly who you think. Penn State performed pretty well in this in this metric. I will say that. Um, but the one team at the top, everyone's going to kind of go, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, everyone will nod their heads. All right. Very good. Well, that's a pretty good sneak peek. Let's move on to our final uh, segment or down here in the Penn Live Penn State Blitz. It's the mailbag. Dave, let me start with this. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, how the Penn State basketball program is doing throughout all of this and also maybe uh, give us some insight on the new commitment they picked up recently? Yeah, they got a kid from Camden who's kind of a throwback power forward. Power forward is not a position that has done well in the the modern age of basketball in general, college basketball in particular. Uh, But Taquan Woodley is nothing but a power forward from Camden High School. Played with Dewan Wagner's kid, played with a kid who, uh, the Wade kid who went out to, who's committed to Kentucky. Really, really good team. Um, could have won the New Jersey, uh, I think it was Class B title if they were allowed to keep playing and the pandemic took care of that. Taquan Woodley uh, is, a, is an interesting player in that he flies in the face of everything that, that we supposedly want right now in a four man, in that he doesn't really pop out and hit the three at all. He doesn't even shoot him uh, that I've seen in his tape. Um, he's basically an old school kind of interior player like a Jamel Cornley, Matt Gaudio, one of those guys who bangs around, is a physical player, but has really good hands. He's a very good passer out of the post. He can handle the ball some, uh, but his offensive repertoire is limited. He has a little right-handed jump hook, and you don't see him do a lot else. But he's pretty fluid with, with the ball with his hands. Uh, it's not like he's a stone-handed um, power forward. He's usable in that he can really rebound. He's a very physical rebounder, not a great leaper, but was recruited and offered by Temple and uh, South Carolina, who are, are schools that know how to use a player like that. 
South Carolina just uh, made the Final Four a few years ago. So he's he's a tough city kind of player. Uh, he knows the guys uh, on the team now. And interestingly, he went. He was at the Palester game where they played Iowa. I saw an interview with him where he said the the guy he was really impressed with in that game was Luca Garza, the uh, the Iowa power forward. Now you, you wouldn't think that a, a kid from Camden would admire somebody like Luca Garza, but he 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 showed a real basketball IQ in that interview, and I think he has that. He's uh, he's a, a kid from you would assume a tough area because Camden's pretty pretty tough area. But he has a certain savviness to them to him that I think in maturity uh, could be he could be a really a really good player for them. Uh, not a trendy player by any means, but uh, an interesting player, a player that like they needed. Rutgers also recruited him. He chose Penn State over Rutgers, which was his home state school, and the kind of kind of kid that really would have fit in Steve Heichel's program because that's the kind of kid that beat Penn State in that game in uh, at the rack. Uh, they had too many tough guys for Penn State in the interior and. Uh, Penn State really couldn't hang with them. They needed a guy like like Taquan Woodley in that game, and now they got one. Very, very good. Dave, tell us the one thing you've either enjoyed most or learned about during all of this uh, shutdown, closure, pandemic stuff that you wouldn't have expected to uh, if we were talking about this potential scenario in January. I never thought I could um, – I think I mentioned this last time I was talking to you guys. I never thought I could bond with my family, kind of rebond with my family like this. I don't know about you, but my wife and my son, we've been cooking for each other and hanging out with each other. Not all the time. We go our separate ways. We, My wife and I are both working at home. Our kid, Nick, has taken over the basement level. But like I said, I mean, we, we play with our German Shepherd every day. We play together. We cook for each other. And we're talking to each other in a way that I don't think we have because people are rushing around all the time in life. And they kind of let life, the real important part of life, pass them by. And that's been nice. It's been so unexpected. And I think we'll all go right back to the way we were after this is over. So I'm kind of savoring that part right now. Did I get a little Tom Rinaldi on you there? I think that they're going to put some piano music in behind (laughs) Piano music. I'm here for you. I just want you to know. All right. Very good. Dave, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. We will leave it there for this week's edition of I, the Penn I Lock hope Penn I filled Bob Flounder's shoes, his size 15s, but I'm not sure I did. That's okay. We'll catch up with everyone next week. See you.